Welcome to the Bangor Sports Science Podcast, the official podcast for the School of Psychology and Sports Sciences at Bangor University. My name is Amir Sandhu and I'm the host of this show which aims to provide you with topical insights about sport and exercise science. Whether you are a practitioner, athlete, coach, student or just generally interested in sports science, we have a selection of guests from different backgrounds who are here to share their knowledge. You can listen to this podcast on all available podcast streaming platforms and can also view the video of the podcast on our Bangor Sports Science YouTube channel. The channel link will be in the description, so please do check it out. Please also take time to like, subscribe and share our content. Welcome to the Bangor Sports Science Podcast. Today's episode title is Tackling the Unseen, Non-Contact Injuries in Rugby Union. This is part of our theme about the science of rugby. And in particular, we're going to explore non-contact injuries in rugby union, athlete monitoring protocols and their use in predicting future non-contact injury. Uh, And we're also going to look at concussion and subsequent non-contact injury. Now, this information is going to be relevant to coaches, practitioners, for example, strength and conditioning coaches, physiotherapists and doctors, as well as data scientists, players and community rugby union teams. Now, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Seren Evans today. Hi, Hi. Seren. Now, Seren completed a long time ago her bachelor's degree in sport health and exercise science. She then went on to recently complete her PhD, looking at surveillance to prediction, a multifactorial approach to injury risk in senior academy rugby union. She's also a final year physiotherapy student. And as if that wasn't enough, she's also a lecturer in sport science, teaching human physiology and sport injury risk. And that's in Bangor University. And she's a postdoctoral researcher for world rugby looking at Welsh injury surveillance in girls' youth rugby. This is an incredibly inspiring list, Seren. I, I, it's amazing. Talk us through how you got to where you are today. Yeah, so um, I'm, a, I'm a sucker for punishment because I just <laughs> can't say no to anything. So, um, yeah, being at Brandon University, doing my bachelor's uh, degree in sports science, then led me to a lot of kind of volunteering opportunities um, and... Um, it actually stemmed from doing a sports massage course where then I got, got involved with the North Wales rugby team and then it kind of snowballed then into a PhD opportunity that came up that was really fitting with what I was interested in so I was always interested in doing more physio sport injury yep. type things um, so then from then um, completed my PhD took me about four and a half years thank you COVID <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah it was a great experience um, very applied uh, research that hopefully will have some, some impact within kind of rugby union as a sport and then I've always wanted to look at similar things as what we were looking at the, the men's game and the yep. women's so that came up with um, this postdoctoral research position that's funded by World Rugby so that's super exciting that we're, we're shortly going to get that underway as okay. well um, and then yeah the physio course has been something I've always wanted to do and I'm finally in my final year I can taste the end and yeah no it's yeah, it's been a, a wild ride, but that's kind well, of how I am where I am. And, and what's the long-term plan then? So once you've completed the physiotherapy degree, what do you want to go into? So long-term plan and kind of 10-year plan for me is to work within professional sport um, and to be a researching practitioner, essentially. So being a physiotherapist, so that hands-on treatment, rehabilitation of athletes, but also 
having that research element is so important for kind of evidence-based practice and yeah. making sure that we're keeping up to date. Um, and I'm particularly interested in kind of concussion rehabilitation at the moment as well. So that's that's where I'd like to go. I think aim high all the time. Oh, so, definitely, yeah. <laughs> definitely. Well, certainly very inspiring. So if we move on to the uh, main top talking points of today, really, then. So we'll start with uh, non-contact injuries in rugby union. Uh, and I think our listeners and our viewers will be particularly interested in terms of what steps players, coaches and teams can actually take to minimise the risk of non-contact injuries. Yeah, so I think, you know, non-contact injuries are often... Um, overlooked in rugby union in particular with contact injuries being so prevalent and I would be you know I have to be honest and you know our research the injury surveillance study that we did showed and confirmed that yes contact injuries are the most common injuries that happen in rugby union Um, and I think we went down the non-contact route because just over 20% of these injuries are non-contact so you have about 80% that are contact related and 20% that are are non-contact and Injuries have a significant impact on team success, right? So if we're able to prevent the preventable, so non-contact injuries are seen as these preventable injuries down to overuse, training load error, like loads of different factors kind of play into it to create this web of determinants of what can predict a non-contact injury. So why don't we target things that we can prevent? Obviously, there are things within contact injuries that can be done to mitigate the risks. I'm not saying that contact injuries are going to happen um, and they are unpreventable. Uh, But if we can make sure that more of a proportion of players are available for team selection, that has benefits for coaches. Um, It also has benefits for practitioners, be that with medical provision and costs of injuries, costs of injuries to players as well. And what we know about non-contact injuries is that they have quite a high rate of recurrence. Okay. So... You know, if we can prevent these from happening in the first place, the cost can be reduced both to player and coach and team and, you know, team success and stuff. So things that can be done to to mitigate these risks are to monitor these athletes, obviously. But one of our main studies was looking at how pre-season training can be utilised to um, mitigate the risk of non-contact injuries. So we looked at how much pre-season training they were doing cumulatively Mm. and then phases of the season then we looked at when these non-contact injuries were happening and what we found was that actually if you did if you attained a low cumulative pre-season training load um the odds of you sustaining an in-season non-contact injury was significantly it was 4.7 i think it was okay um so then we can't actually just look at that injury in isolation either um because injuries happen because of multiple reasons yes. it's never really an x plus y equals z yeah. when it comes to injuries but in particular non-contact ones as well um so we then looked at how previous injury can influence this and as we added these into the modeling that increased the odds even more to about 6.5 and then also if they had sustained if they had accumulated a high season training load in the early phase so say if they were trying to play catch up with what they'd lost in that pre-season phase, mm. that increased the odds even more. Right. So I think what's important to kind of relay to practitioners is that if you have athletes that are accumulating low pre-season training loads, don't try to play catch-up right. because you're just going to overload them. But also we could query that because they have accumulated a low pre-season training load, they're actually doing the same as their other players in that early phase, but they're perceiving it as being a lot higher because okay. they are not conditioned to it. 
Um, so pre-season training load has a huge part to play in right, okay. contact injuries. Okay, and so and for more information, they can read the papers that you've published on this topic yes. as well. Yeah, okay, that's great. Okay, so in terms of, so I'm thinking about detection then of non-contact injuries. Um, are there any emerging technologies that, you know, a team could utilise to try and uh, understand more about, you know, somebody going on to have a non-contact injury? Yeah, definitely. You know, we, we all know about how GPS is a really good yeah. measure of measuring accelerations, total distance covered. So coaches often use these to prescribe training loads to make sure that they're uh, accumulating enough so they're ready for the yeah. game demands. Uh, but what I wanted to focus on the most was how we can create an, an athlete monitoring battery or you know, a set of tests that we can do that doesn't cost an absolute fortune that community clubs could use, that semi-pro clubs could use, um, because these are the grassroots, these are the foundations of the game. Um, you know, at the professional level, they're going to have all the, you know, the gold standard equipment. Yeah. So there were some things that we used, and some tests were actually validated here at Bangor Uni, um, using sphygmometers to test hamstring strength, okay. um, but ankle dorsiflexion angle. We looked at, we've just had a measure device on an iPhone, and got them to do an inline lunge, and then you can measure the angle yep. of dorsiflexion. Um, and similar with the adductor squeeze test, we just had a sphygmometer um, placed in between their knees, and they would squeeze maximally, right. and that would give that. So there's loads of things out there um, that can be utilised on a grassroots, semi-professional level rugby yep. that you can use to monitor your athletes. Um, and yeah, so. It's important for them to be streamlined and obviously validated because you don't want people spending hours and hours monitoring either. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that was the main focus really, was to make sure that you can tie it. In and with, the, with this technology, is the learning curve quite steep? I mean, could, could this be applied by you know, like non-specialists or would it need some, somebody with some specialist knowledge? Well, that's what's good about it. So, for example, the, the hamstring sphygmometer test was tested against the isokinetic dynamometer, yep. which would require you to have some specialists um, yep. to run that and understand and, and determine what the results mean. So you can definitely use it. There are protocols um, within the papers that have been published and also um, the ones that I that I did on my final study of my PhD as well. Um, I was responsible for collecting that data, but the SNC coach would take over, okay. the physio would also use it as an outcome measure, so there's loads of uses for them as well, but yeah, you don't have to be no, okay. researchers, so that's what's good. That's good, so it's multidisciplinary and it's the, the learning curve's quite easy, so this yeah. is something that even at a grassroots level, yeah. uh, somebody could start using with their team yeah. uh, to predict non-contact injuries. Okay, so... Um, um, I suppose our listeners will also be interested in terms of the impact on a player's career uh, about non-contact injuries and how that affects the overall team performance as well. So can you tell us your thoughts about that? Yeah, so as I mentioned with regards to team success, if you have X amount of players out at a time, you're yep. going to have less choice for team selection, you're going to have less choice for substitutions, which has a knock-on effect then. Um, so say if you, you have a game and you don't have as many subs as you'd like um, and contact injuries tend to happen because of fatigue related things. So if you can have players available to mitigate that fatigue that players are playing 80 minute games when they shouldn't be, that is how non-contact injuries can actually indirectly impact um, the, the impact of contact injuries as well. So it's, it's huge and you know with the non-contact injuries being quite high in their occurrence as well, the cost of that, 
the rehabilitation time and we can't underestimate the kind of psychological impact of that on an athlete as well if they're constantly having to take time out because of these mm. little niggles that are happening yeah. it'd be quite a frustrating time for them and especially we worked in semi-professional rugby so that is the stepping stone that players often use to go and play yeah. professional um, so if they're missing those opportunities to play it's going to be huge for them with regards yeah. to their career yeah and then the psychological impact as well and that has its own set of adverse mm. impacts on performance mm. okay so okay let's move forward then to athlete monitoring protocols then um, and particularly how you might use them for predicting future non-contact injury um, so firstly it's important for the listeners to know what athlete monitoring protocols are uh, and in particular how they work to track the athlete's performance and health. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so athlete monitoring is there for to monitor performance. It's there to, um, it can monitor recovery from rehab if they have sustained an injury, but it's also a good indicator of where they're at currently with regards to training stress. Um, so you can really start to tailor a really sport-specific athlete monitoring system that doesn't take hours and hours to do. So, so the ways in which you can utilise them is um, we had um, a musculoskeletal screening. So we'd screen the things like I mentioned, the hamstring strength, adductor squeeze, dorsiflexion angle. We also had uh, ratings of muscle soreness. Obviously, training load is another yeah. part of your athlete monitoring. Um, we use session RPEs multiplied by the duration, um, and which is a valid and reliable measure of training load. Other teams might use GPS, which is great, but the RP is really easy to apply at yeah. various levels, and it gives you a good indication of where athletes are currently at. And finally, you'd also want to incorporate performance testing, and I think this is sometimes overlooked um, because we focus so much on the training load and the musculoskeletal screening. We don't think about actually how does their sprint performance impact their injury risk? How does their aerobic capacity influence their injury risk? So these are really important foundations as well. They can all be done kind of in the pre-seasons with regards to testing. Um, So that's what kind of formulated our athlete monitoring system and obviously we have previous injury and awareness of what they've sustained previously okay and you mentioned uh, session rp so rp being ratings of perceived exertion and this is characterizing the intensity that particular training session might have yes yeah and that's a tool that's widely available as well isn't it it's it's freely available for a practitioner or a coach to to download and then use with the team at every session yeah exactly and it can be a really good indicator if you're looking at it anecdotally if someone is experiencing really high training load you might start querying okay what's going on with this player do I need to adapt their training in that moment? So that's how you kind of do it at that community okay. level. Okay, that's good. Now, I know your PhD was looking at injury prediction as well, and that was quite a core element of your research, wasn't it? So uh, what specific metrics and data points might actually be valuable for injury prediction? So we need to look at injuries from a multifactorial perspective. Um, and we used a pattern recognition data analysis approach yeah. to look at these. So I think that in total, there was about... 103 data points per player um, which is huge Um, and we also obviously looked at their training load as well and the things that came out as being significant predictors of non-contact ankle injury were um, pre-season dorsiflexion angle of less than 32 degrees so they're also really specific as to what increases the risk of injury so dorsiflexion angle is key if they were slower in their 10 metre sprint and their 40 metre sprint if they were heavier in body weight, 
if they had a previous ankle injury and also a previous concussion. So okay. those together is what predicted were the predictors of non-contact ankle injury. Okay. So if we look at that in kind of a bit more depth as to what that means altogether, if you are heavier in body weight and you are exerting high force during running through a restricted range of movement, yep. that kind of makes sense as to well, it does, yeah, yeah. ankles injuries are going to probably yes, happen. Yeah. And obviously previous ankle injury <clears throat> is a, one of the main predictors. Yep. The lateral ankle sprains recur all the time. But the interesting one within that is previous concussion. Okay. So that's kind of, I think that's where we're going next. Yes, that. yeah. So, yeah. Um, the previous concussion one is super interesting and there is definitely emerging evidence with regards to concussions potentially being predictors of subsequent soft tissue. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So, so yeah. So that's... Yeah. Okay. Well, that's, I'm going to ask you about that shortly <laughs> then. So um, I wanted to just stay on the um, uh, the metrics. And so your model was actually quite, um, it was quite specific, wasn't it? It was quite detailed. But do you feel that there were some things that were perhaps important, but not necessarily factored into the model? So for example, um, you know, the role of nutrition, maybe even the possibly genetics as well. Yeah, I think it's really important to, to point out that even though we were taking this multifactorial approach, did we capture everything we possibly should have and could have? No, because mm -hmm. like you say, nutrition will have a role. We didn't monitor any psychological yeah. elements either. And there are links with that with um, non-contact injuries okay. in sport. Yeah. So we took a, if you look at it objectively with regards to what we yeah. measured, yeah, definitely, you know, we, we took that multifactorial approach but we ex we didn't have nutrition we didn't have psychological components and those could potentially be separate models that you could right. do um and i think you know if you have the time and resources to do so you should you know these are things yeah. you should definitely tie in yeah um we did it from a stance of we were actually trying to streamline what they were doing already right um but yeah definitely other factors do come into yeah. play um, and especially if you think about injuries apprehension and movement after an injury is huge yeah, but that's yeah. the psychological element that that's we right. probably should have monitored yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah and especially in contact sports as well you can't be apprehensive going into no, no. tackles or movements or you know change of directions so. okay so i guess we've got a, in terms of where the fields are at the moment there's there's a lot of work that's been done which has been good at characterizing what's going on but there's still more to do always yeah, yeah there's always still more always. questions to answer yes. okay um so if we think about like coaches or even sports medicine professionals in a team you've got this kind of data multifactorial data um, how might they make an informed decision to prevent injuries what kind of things could they do with their team yeah i think it's you know following where the evidence is going so say if they were to take that model that we created and you were to start, to, you would start to see then maybe um, almost like a traffic light system for these okay. players. Yeah. Um, if players um, have all of these components within their preseason and they're in the red, that they're yeah. in the high risk, you could then implement some prehabilitation strategies. Okay. For example, targeting. You know, we don't know this, but possibly just targeting one of those components could make a huge difference to the outcome. So if you target. Um, improving their ankle mobility, for example, mm. that could have an influence. And, you know, it's important to have an understanding of the sport as well, because obviously body weight was a predictor in this sense. Yeah. However, body weight can be a key performance indicator in rugby, yeah. so we're not going to start telling players that they need to lose weight to stop having non-contact injuries. Yeah. It's about 
doing everything you can around that. Okay. Um, if that's something that you're going to keep the same, but also you know you need to enhance their sprint time, so more sprint based training, plyometric training, and, and all that kind of stuff. So right. Okay. It's about timely interventions. Yes. So these should be things and patterns that you should start to pick up in your pre season. Yes. That's why yeah. it's such an important phase of the, of the yeah. season. No. Okay. That's good. Okay. So now let's move on then to the concussion. So you mentioned that before and. In, in particular, we're talking about concussion and subsequent non-contact injury, and that's quite a, an interesting link, isn't it? Um, so first of all, what are the kind of potential long-term effects of concussion on an athlete's kind of long-term performance and health? Yeah, you know, there's, there's some evidence emerging currently with regards to um, the CTE, so chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Yep. And a lot of these players are coming forward, retired players that are really, you know, there's early onset dementia, um, and it's really shocking um, and sad, but it's also a really important discussion to be having mm. to raise the awareness of why monitoring concussions and handling them appropriately is so important. Yep. Um, and I think we're definitely heading in the right direction with the law changes, with the graduated return to play. But like we kind of mentioned earlier, it's about we're, we're doing as much as we can, but we can always do more. Yeah. I think you can't always come to an end conclusion where this is our graduated return to play from concussion and that's how it's going to be forever. That is going to have to change mm. and it's going to have to move where the research has taken us and also taken into account these player experiences. So the long-term health is something that's being researched extensively at the moment. Yeah. And also, um, you know, we're looking at it from an angle even short-term. After you sustain a concussion, you are at a potentially greater risk of sustaining a subsequent soft tissue injury. Um, there has been links in previous research about these lateral ankle sprains. And if you think about that in the context of what a concussion is, you know, a mild traumatic brain injury, it's going to affect your balance, it's mm. going to affect your coordination, yep. could affect your decision-making, reaction times, all of these things that could in turn increase your injury injury risk from okay. there. Okay, interesting. Um, interesting and quite frightening as well because, yeah. you, you you know, it, it, we, we go back to the theme of this uh, podcast, which is the unseen, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And, you know, you have concussion injury, you think you're better, but you've got these, you know, consequences. So in terms of, so let's explore then how does having concussion increase the risk of non-contact injuries? What's that kind of like mechanism or link? Yeah, so kind of like what I've just, spoken about really it affects everyone differently and yeah. that's what's tricky with concussions um someone will have no symptoms and be absolutely fine whereas someone else will have prolonged symptoms yeah. um and so the things that will happen is you know it'll impact your vestibular system so it'll impact your your balance and potentially the way you move the way you run yeah. the way, way you'll change direction right, yeah, yeah. Um, and all of those things and those are key performance indicators when it comes to rugby union and i think the pitfalls of this currently, in, in kind of my opinion, is we have a graduated return to play protocol that involves, you know, light activity, make sure that symptoms aren't reproduced. Well, first off, it's some time off um, and then it's light activity. And then if there's no symptoms, you move on to the next phase, which is slightly more intense. I think it's on feet running. And then the third phase then looks at um, introducing them back into the sport. Right. Now... I would, you know, challenge practitioners to think, okay, where along that system there are we challenging these um, fine motor control movements, these the balance, the coordination, yeah. all of these things within that? Because if you are 
avoiding those and waiting until they they have a rugby ball back in their hand. Yep. Um, you've probably left it too late, too late yeah. um, in my opinion, because they're going to have people running at them. They're going to have all of these ta- challenges and what can happen because these things like you know it's cogni- can impact someone you know cognitively. If you start introducing these these metrics of proprioception or you know these rehabilitation strategies, you could definitely um, aggravate their symptoms, right? Yeah, but that yeah. is warrants you to think, okay, well they're definitely not ready to go back on that pitch. If they're getting symptoms, okay, they can sit on a bike and they can run. But if they're getting symptoms from um, doing maybe what we perceive as simple balance exercise, yeah. they are not ready to go right. the full way. So you need to just hold them back, and that be, can be quite frustrating. For both practitioners, for players, yeah. they, they feel okay, but um, we need to always be safe in our practice. Okay, so what are the rehabilitation strategies then that you could utilise to, you know, reduce that like injury risk and get them back to play ASAP? Yeah, well, that's kind of something we're interested in looking at and how the graduated returns play might. Um, better address these and I know other researchers have brought this these issues up as well yeah uh, with how we can you know best optimize that time um, and also it's a lot of it is to do with um, improving people's education on how to manage concussions yeah especially within kind of community and semi-professional levels because it's different if you sustain a concussion at the professional level that is your full-time income you are going to be fully supported through your return to play protocols mm. and you know you're going to be paid you're going to be re- you know that you have no concerns outside of that you pull it back to these um lower standards of play um, you potentially don't have that support and i think we're guilty of in sport looking at injuries in a very biomedical way yeah. you know if there's a knee injury we're going to treat that knee injury okay back you go on the pitch and that can sometimes be the case but when it comes to concussion we can't take the same approach it has to be a more, you know, we talk about the biopsychosocial yeah. approach, how it's impacting this person psychologically, you know, there's mood changes and, and, and these types of stuff. And socially, financially, how is yeah. this impacting them? Are they taking able to take time off work? Um, and, you know, this is a whole other can of worms, but then we look at paediatric concussions yes, in yeah. the youth game. You know, there's very, you know, the diagnosis is accurate, you know, they're usually sent to A&E because of the lack of medical provision at these stages. Um, but then do they go to school the next day, which is a very high cognitive load. So it's about educating everyone on how to best manage concussions, but it's also, as practitioners, how we can best support them through that. Mm. Um, but I think, like I say, are we doing as much as we can? Yes, but can we do more? Absolutely. Right, okay. Um, in terms of the crossover then, in, 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 I'm thinking of sports like American football, even football as well, perhaps boxing. Uh, is there some crossover from what you might do in rugby, rugby science, into those sports as well? Or do you think we've got to look then at specific factors related to those sports? Yeah, that's, that's an interesting question. I think contact sports especially, you know, we're going to have instances where we can do things to mitigate these contact injuries mm. but obviously there's some instances of foul play accidental collisions deliberate yeah. collisions yeah. that you can't necessarily forecast and you know it is sometimes innate in sport these yeah. these injury risks are out there um but i imagine contact sports will have um very similar ways of managing concussions because you obviously need to reduce the head impacts or the um high speeds um, collisions, not mm. necessarily even to the head that they're doing um, when they're coming back. 
Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm aware of some interesting concepts within football at the minute, um, which I'm, I imagine the management would be the same. Um, but however, how you maybe mitigate the risks of that might be a bit different. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's an interesting... Okay. Um, and and as the other thing that I'm mindful of is a lot of the research that's been done has been in males. And that whether that crosses over to females is obviously, you know, is debatable, isn't yes. it? Because of the different physiology of females. Mm -hmm. Now, in terms of what you're doing next, you know, you're, you're doing your postdoc. Yeah. So tell us a little bit more about how you're trying to address that kind of need in, in female rugby. Yeah, we're, you know, super excited to get this, this project underway. And every, when you come to injury prevention, everything starts with surveillance. We need to mm -hmm. know what the problem is. And in the population that we're working with in girls youth rugby, there is very limited, if not any, data. Um, and it's not to scare people away from mm -hmm. playing rugby either. It's to establish, okay, what are the potential risks and what can we do about them? We need to know what they are first. Um, and there's been some really um, interesting research on female concussions as well. Um, on Twitter, there's um, a great page, Pink Concussions, okay. which discusses kind of female concussions and, and the research that comes out um, with regards to uh, prolonged symptoms, how your menstrual cycle can actually influence yeah. the, the time you take to recover from a concussion, which is Interesting. huge. Um, so yeah, there's loads of these um, concepts that have been researched now within the female game, and we're super excited to kind of support teams as yeah. well. Um, I think that's a key part of the applied nature of the research that we do here, that we're not just dipping into these teams, taking the data and leaving. Yeah. It's about that long-term effect that we can have uh, by implementing some preventative strategies, um, supporting coaches, parents yeah. as well, yeah. even you know collecting that injury data from this population, um, we can support parents and best direct them of where they need to go if they do have concerns. Because okay. like I mentioned, kind of there is hardly ever um, medical provision at these these levels. Yeah. Yeah. You know, if we can flag up if there is an issue, we could flag this up with unions, governing bodies, and say yeah. there needs to be people at these games to cover for these players' safety. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, okay. And I think also in, is, we need to inspire the, the kind of next generation scientists mm -hmm. To look at this problem specifically in in female sports, female rugby as well, um, and I think this is really good work that you've started, and hopefully it goes quite far and takes you quite far. Okay, well, Seren, it's been absolutely brilliant to have you here. Um, I think I've learned a lot, many things that I didn't know before, and I'm sure that our listeners and viewers will have as well. Uh, have you? Is there any way for people to connect with you? I mean, social media channels. Yeah, so we've got. I've got a Twitter page for. Um where I discuss my research with us at Lois Seren and then we've also got a page for our um, Whisker research yep. so the Welsh Injury Surveillance Study in Girls Youth Rugby so that's Whisker Research. Okay, what I'll do is I'll put those links up uh, on the video off on our YouTube channel uh, and also in the description of the uh, podcast streaming platforms. Um, okay, that's brilliant. Well, Seren, thank you very much. It's been Thanks a real pleasure yeah. to have you and uh, we wish you all the best on your future journey. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's Bangor Sports Science podcast. We hope you found it informative and enjoyable and look forward to bringing you more episodes Please like, share and subscribe to our content and until next time, goodbye 